Well, hello, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode four in the series on the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. Before I get started down the road of what may look to some as polytheism or Greek mythology in the coming episodes, let me make clear that the Most High God of the Bible, Yahweh, is unique. He is the only creator, the only being with the ability to create something out of nothing. He's the only God who transcends all realms of creation and is eternal. There are none who compare to him. There are dozens of scripture passages that say so. Take this one, for example. This is Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Simply says, There is no one like Yahweh our God. This scripture testifies that Yahweh is unique, and specifically, that He alone is the God of the Hebrews. It's important to see that Yahweh is referred to as our God but not that Yahweh is the only one who is called or known as a God by others. Scripture is not saying that Yahweh is alone as being recognized as a supernatural being who is referred to as a God. That would have been silly from the perspective of the ancient Hebrews, who were surrounded by people who worshipped other gods. Moses and his Hebrew contemporaries recognized that other peoples had their own gods. But Yahweh was their God, no one else. And He was their God for very good reasons. Because He is the unique, most high God. The only one worthy to be worshipped. That's what the majority of the scriptures are saying when they say there are no other gods. They are reaffirming that Yahweh is the only God for the Hebrews, and that He alone is unique in that He is over all other gods, because He created them, while He Himself was never created. He just always has been. The Hebrews were monotheistic. Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The Hebrews knew other nations, such as Egypt, had many of what they called gods, this is why the scriptures restate so often that Yahweh is the one and only God of the Hebrews. There was a lot of constant God competition going on because there were many of what people called gods. But scripture repeatedly proclaims the uniqueness of Yahweh, such as Deuteronomy 4.35, which says, Yahweh, He is God. There is no other besides him. Or what about Yahweh? He is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. There is no other. That's Deuteronomy 4.39. And Yahweh is God. There is no one else. That's from 1 Kings 8.60. Scripture quotes God saying this about himself. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I... I am He, and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And a similar verse is in Isaiah 46, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, 
and there is no one like me. See how God declares his uniqueness. And scripture records the Hebrews proclaiming the uniqueness of God to God in praise. 2 Samuel 7.22 says this, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. That's echoed in 2 Samuel 22.32. For who is God besides Yahweh, and who is a rock besides our God? And then in 1 Chronicles 17.20, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. Again, there are literally dozens of passages of Scripture that testify as to the uniqueness of God. I won't take up any more time here quoting them. Truly, Yahweh is unique, and because of his uniqueness, there are none besides him. While that is true, we can't deny that he created other heavenly beings that he himself calls the sons of God and holy ones, or that the Old Testament sometimes refers to them as Elohim, the same word it uses for the Most High God, Yahweh. So we need to reconcile the fact that there are none besides Yahweh, while the Bible informs us that there are other beings called gods by understanding that Yahweh is unique. He is alone, not created. He has always been. He alone created all else. There are truly none beside him, not only in Israel, but in uniqueness over all others who may be called gods. The other Elohim that he created have often been mistaken by people for gods, which they have prayed to, worshipped, and relied upon to meet their needs and desires. Even Israel, in their disobedience and rebellion, as documented in the Old Testament, has done so many times. Well, in his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul provides us with some clarity. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Here we go. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is telling us that behind the image of a god what we know as an idol, which is made of natural materials such as wood, stone, or metal. There is nothing supernatural that exists just because the natural material has been shaped into the idol maker's idea of what a god would look like. In other words, a rock is still a rock, even if it's been chipped away at. Then Paul tells us that there is no god but one. If we were to stop there and didn't read on, and if we were to ignore all the rest of Scripture on this topic, if we were to make the very common mistake of simply quoting a single verse and relying on it to dictate our theology, we would come up with a wrong conclusion. That conclusion being that Yahweh is alone in the universe as being known as a God. 
But when we read on, Paul tells us, quote, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, unquote. Paul simply tells us that there are many other gods besides Yahweh. He also uses the term so-called gods. What's he mean by that? He means what I've been trying to say here, that Yahweh is unique in that he alone created all other things, including the so-called gods. Here again is how Paul put it. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. God created them all. Paul does not deny the existence of other gods. He affirms their existence. He reaffirms Psalm 97.9, which says, Not that God is alone, known as a God, but that He is the Most High, exalted far above all other gods. When Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is only one God, and when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, that there is, quote, one God and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, unquote, he's telling us that Yahweh is the unique and most high God, who is the sovereign God of all other so-called gods. Why else does anyone think Yahweh is referred to as the Most High over four dozen times in the Bible, if not that He is the Most High above all other gods? In fact, He's referred to specifically as the Most High God ten different times within the Old and New Testament. As you'll see in coming podcasts, what Paul calls so-called gods are real, created spiritual beings who are in rebellion against Yahweh. They are wannabe posers who humans have mistakenly put their trust in. When someone tells you that these so-called gods were only a product of the imagination of the poor, ignorant saps of yesteryear, (laughs) and that such gods never actually existed, they are doing you a great disservice. These spiritual beings didn't go anywhere. They may have changed their names, adapted their methods of operating to a new time, and relocated, but they and their rebellious ways are still around today. There's still a great deal of God competition going on, trying to rob people's affection away from Yahweh and His Son, Jesus. I talk about false gods more extensively in the second book I wrote called False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. That book is available on Amazon. But for now, let's move on to the next topic, the reality of heaven. Now, this is clearly not true for all, but it goes without saying for many Christians that they believe in heaven or the spiritual realm. It's not just an idea. It's real. So, why am I taking time to make a case that heaven is real? It's because some, even many, Even millions of Christians don't believe that heaven is real. In fact, only 85% of Christians in the U.S. believe heaven is real. While that's a great majority, 
with 205 million people claiming to be Christians in the U.S., this means that over 31 million of them don't believe in a literal heaven. And then, many of those that do believe in heaven scarcely have the biblical knowledge to talk about what it's like with any authority whatsoever. One philosophical argument against the existence of heaven is that the classic view of heaven says that God supposedly resides there, and that can't be possible if God is transcendent, as the scriptures indicate. Secondly, since scripture says that no man has seen God, God cannot exist in any part of creation. They say visions and descriptions of heaven are only tools to relate to us mere mortals ideas that God wants to get across to us. Wow. I'm glad it's not me who essentially is saying to God, uh, I know you're only saying there is a heaven because you think we can't understand reality, but you can't outsmart me. I know you're just making this heaven and hell stuff up, O oh Lord. Well, if we take Scripture at face value, as Jesus and the apostles seem to, Heaven exists outside of the mind of God. I do believe that God transcends all creation, both physical and spiritual, but I believe He has the ability to make Himself known to His creation, and He does so on a full-time basis in the spiritual realm that He created, like He once made Himself known in the person of Jesus in the physical realm. Secondly, I also believe no man has seen God and lived, just like Scripture says. But then, what do we do with the visions and the pre-Christ appearances of God on earth? Well, what I do with them is recognize that God is transcendent, and no man has ever witnessed the fullness of the God who cannot be contained by either the spiritual or physical realms or both realms of creation. I believe our tiny brains would explode if we would ever see God as we tried to comprehend what we were witnessing. We don't have the capability of either imagining the fullness of God or comprehending anything about Him outside the ability He created in us to do so. Like the physical realm, the spiritual realm was made or created by God. It can be thought of as a place. Beings exist there. Beings come from there. Beings, including Jesus, go there. However, it is not a physical place. The earth realm, or physical universe, is made of physical elements. The spiritual realm is not made of physical matter or energy. It cannot be observed via physical senses or measured with material instruments. Even the electromagnetic spectrum and energy was created within the context of the physical realm, and therefore cannot detect things which exist in the spiritual realm. I remember one very popular televangelist years ago saying that the spirit realm worked like an episode of the original Star Trek series in which spiritual beings move faster than the speed of light, and so they can't be seen, but they're all around us. I'm not even going to give that one a maybe. <laughs> That's a lame attempt to provide a physical explanation for something that is not physical. The spiritual world is made from spiritual stuff. We humans have had very few details of what's on the other side 
of the darkened glass revealed to us. But the Bible does reveal some details. What follows is not meant to provide a full biblical description of heaven, but only to address the reality of heaven. What heaven is like, according to the descriptions contained in the Bible, is another interesting and very gratifying topic. Heaven is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. The Greek word translated as heaven in the Bible is orenos. It can refer to either the atmosphere surrounding the earth, outer space, or the spiritual realm. Out of the 284 times the word is used in the New Testament, there are only around 20 times that it is undoubtedly referring to the sky or outer space. The rest refer to the unseen realm. There are a few more times when the word could be referring to either the unseen realm or the area above the earth where the planets are located. This is like when we read something like, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven. That could either mean an angel suddenly appeared out of the unseen realm, or it could mean that the writer saw an angel coming down out of the earth's portion of the atmosphere we know as sky. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated as heaven is shamayim. In the 421 times that word is used, it's regularly translated as either the sky or outer space in addition to the dwelling place of God. However, that was at a time when outer space, the place of the sun, moon, stars, was closely associated with the dwelling place of God. They were often synonymous in the ancient's mind. They were often thought of as being one and the same place. You must evaluate each use separately, but most times the term heaven and earth is used. It's referring to the spiritual realm of heaven and the physical realm of earth. The term earth typically includes just the soil under our feet, the sea, and the sky, or outer space where the planets are. Deuteronomy 10.14 is an example of how heaven is used in different ways in the Old Testament. Listen to this. It says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. So, the place of heaven, in the unseen realm sense, is referred to hundreds of times in the Old Testament. When we speak of heaven as meaning the spiritual realm and not the sky or outer space, there are two different sub-meanings. First, the heavens refers to the entire expanse of the spirit realm and all of its inhabitants. We see this in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know this use of the word heavens in Genesis 1.1 did not refer to the sky or outer space because those things did not yet exist in the beginning, before day one marked the beginning of physical time. The sky was created on day two of creation, and the contents of outer space were created on day four. The second meaning of heaven is when we speak of heaven proper, the place where the throne of the Almighty God is located. This is like a country being called by the same name as its capital, like Luxembourg and Luxembourg City. 
Heaven is in heaven. Based on who goes there, occupies there, and comes from there, heaven was created to accommodate what I call trans-realm beings. We've seen that the heavens are occupied by one transcendent, unique, uncreated being, Yahweh, our Almighty and Most High God, and millions of different unseen realm created beings which make up its population. Listen to this passage from the book of Daniel. This is chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is Daniel speaking. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. A thousand thousands is one million, and ten thousand times ten thousand is a hundred million. Those are all spiritual beings. The generic term for this quite diverse and very large population is the heavenly host. We know heaven's the place where the one and only transcendent God, Yahweh, has chosen to take on a form, spiritual as it is, and regularly interface with the spiritual part of his creation. And we know that heaven was also built to accommodate Jesus in his resurrected form. Similarly, even if temporarily or occasionally as indicated in the book of Revelation, it will one day host millions more humans in their resurrected bodies. In Revelation chapter 7, we see a large crowd of people, too large to count, suddenly show up in heaven. John records they were all standing before the throne of God. An angel identified this group as those who came out of the Great Tribulation, which from our perspective will take place sometime in the future. Although it looks as though one of the responsibilities in eternity for resurrected humans will be serving in God's temple, the normal place of residence, at least during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, will still be on the earth as the elect rule and reign with Jesus over his earthly kingdom. Well, this seems to indicate that the resurrected bodies that we're going to have are able to either be in heaven, in the presence of God where we serve him, or on the earth where we're ruling and reigning with Jesus over his earthly kingdom. Like I say, God created heaven to accommodate transmutated (laughs) beings. Well, the souls of formerly physical beings, specifically martyrs, are also both seen and heard in heaven in John's vision in Revelation. These souls have consciousness and the ability to speak. They must have some sort of form because they can be seen. Yet, they had not yet been resurrected in their eternal new bodies. However, at the point in time John saw them, they were each given white robes to wear in preparation for soon receiving their hybrid resurrected bodies once Jesus returns to the earth. These former physical humans appear to be spirits in some form that we do not know about. They are living, awake, reasoning, and conversing in the spirit realm. But we should expect this to be the case if the Apostle Paul can be trusted. 
As Paul pointed out in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, when we are absent from our physical bodies, we are present with the Lord. But either way, whether alive or physically dead, the departed elect are conscious, and either way, according to Paul, they will, quote, make it their aim to please God, unquote. Pleasing God and making it your aim requires consciousness. Here's the whole passage I just referred to, starting with verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. According to John's description, which is the best revealed information we have to go on, these spirits of the departed do not appear to be thoughts in God's mind, or souls stacked up like cordwood in some sort of spiritual cold storage facility. The following is how the revelation of Jesus, who is the truth, and in him there is no lie, wants us to think of the souls or spirits of the dead who have died and have gone to be where he is. This is from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. When he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There they are, the souls of the departed elect, according to the unveiling, the information from Jesus. They are awake, aware, reasoning, and conversant. They even have the ability to cry out. Based on numerous angelic visitations documented in the Bible, God created spirit beings like angels in the spirit realm with the capability to transmutate into physical form and temporarily appear on the earth. Similarly, He created resurrected bodies, bodies that could be seen, heard, and touched, bodies that could eat with the ability to transmutate into spiritual form. That's all based on what we read about Jesus in his resurrected state. On the earth, we see Jesus suddenly appear in rooms and likewise suddenly disappear. You can read about that in John chapter 20, verse 19, and Luke chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. In Acts 1, 9 to 11, we read about him ascending into the heavens. We know he's in heaven now, a spiritual place a place that according to 1 Corinthians 15.50 and John 3.5-6, flesh cannot inherit. Yet, when on the earth after the resurrection, his body could be touched, he built fires, he ate food, he conversed with people. In 2 Kings 2.11-12, we read that Elijah was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind without first dying. Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch also was taken up so that he should not see death. So, since Enoch and Elijah were taken to heaven without first dying and receiving a resurrected body, 
And since only spirit can inherit or experience the kingdom of God, which currently exists in the spirit realm, God must have transmutated both men into some sort of spiritual beings. God can do that. Like so many other things in the Bible, the fact that this was not normal and was a miracle is why it was noteworthy in the Bible. We have no reason to believe that Elijah and Enoch are anywhere other than in heaven to this day. We have no reason to believe their bodies are floating around somewhere in outer space, or that they vaporized and went into the mind of God. Then there's Moses. According to Deuteronomy 34, 1-8, Moses did die and was buried in an undisclosed location in the Valley of Moab. Yet, on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew 17, 3, he appeared in a form that could be observed by the physical eyes of Peter, James, and John. God temporarily transmutated Moses, a dead human who had become a spirit being living in heaven, into a being that could be observed, recognized by those who had never seen him before, and be interacted with by humans. The transmutation of spirit beings into physical form, or physical beings into spirit form, seems to be no problem for God. Paul ascended into what he called the third heaven. He also referred to the specific place he went to as paradise. Presumably the same paradise we can read of in Luke 23:43, where Jesus said he would be in the same day as his crucifixion took place, together with the good thief on the cross next to him. Paradise does not appear to be an idea or only a thought in God's mind. 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4 tells us that whether Paul's visit to paradise took place in his physical body or in a vision, he did not know. Being left with the choice of either a vision or in his body at least implies Paul was under the impression that it is a real place and it was in the realm of possibility that he may have literally went there. In other words, he didn't say, I know it couldn't have been heaven because we all know heaven isn't a real place. It only exists in the mind of God. He did not say that. Paul did not provide any description of heaven other than he witnessed things that, quote, man may not utter, unquote. Another guy saw heaven. At the stoning of Deacon Stephen, Stephen looked up and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. You can read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. In Revelation, speaking of paradise as though it is a real place, the tree of life is said to be in the midst of the paradise of God. This is not the tree of death, limbo, or an unconscious state of being. This is a tree of life that exists in paradise. For those who would argue that these are only symbolic words, I disagree with you. But if that were the case, then surely the symbolism represented by a tree of life would symbolically represent life and consciousness. Revelation 1.10 records that the Apostle John had a vision of heaven when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Even though he was, quote, in the Spirit, unquote, he reports that he was caught up to heaven. Like Paul's vision, whether this visit to heaven was in John's body or out of his body, we do not know. 
What he saw there is recorded throughout the book of Revelation. The throne room of heaven proper is described in some detail in chapters 4 and 5. Ezekiel chapter 1 informs us that Ezekiel was being held captive by the river Kabar when he had a vision of heaven. The prophet Isaiah also experienced heaven. I say experienced because in his vision he not only saw and heard, but in Isaiah chapter 6 we read he was touched on the mouth with a burning coal that was taken from the altar by one of the seraphim. Again, whether it was in the body or out of the body, we're not told. But Isaiah certainly felt the burning coal on his lips. In Daniel chapter 7, we read that he, Daniel, had a dream or a vision in the night of heaven. All these heavenly experiences of the apostles and prophets may have been visions not requiring any sort of transmutation from physical flesh into spiritual stuff. But even if only visions and not in-person visitations of heaven, all these biblical accounts referenced paint an awe-inspiring, composite, consistent picture of what God wants us to hold as an image of what heaven looks like if we were able to see it. Yes, God gave humans who had the privilege of glimpsing heaven a vision of something their physical minds could comprehend. But it's how God wants all of us to comprehend heaven as existing. He gave visions to several different witnesses who all saw basically the same kinds of things over a period of hundreds of years. They're from different places, times, and subcultures. Going beyond what's been revealed about heaven and applying human logic, philosophy, and science to make assumptions beyond what God has revealed to the apostles and prophets is something that we're just not tasked with doing. Think of it this way. What would God have to do to get across to us what the heavenly realm is really like? He's provided several eyewitness accounts that we have access to, yet, according to our 21st century sensibilities and scientific I-gotta-see-it-to-believe-it minds, we would each have to experience it for ourselves. That, rather than having faith or believing in what God's Word says about it, it takes no more faith to believe what the Bible says about heaven than it does to believe Jesus rose from the dead, walked on the water, turned water into wine, or cast out spiritual beings from human bodies. We're told in the Bible that there are things on the earth that are copies of things which are in heaven. Hebrews 9.23-25 says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Some post-enlightenment teachers say that the prophets, when describing their visions of heaven, used terminology that people could understand that were based on familiar things to us, like familiar forms of government. So, they put heavenly things into earthly terms like thrones, elders, altars, etc. Well, that may be true. However, it's more likely that what we experience on earth is as it is in heaven. I have no biblical reason to think that God rearranges the furniture in heaven just because he's going to have human prophets who have no experience to relate to 
as guest observers there. The earth, in many ways, is patterned after heaven. While many things on earth do appear to resemble things in heaven, according to the visions, there are other things described in the visions of heaven recorded in the Bible which sound completely bizarre that we have nothing on earth to compare, such as cherubim and seraphim. The prophets were only documenting what they saw or experienced and described what they saw in the best terms they could that could be understood by others. The similarities they witnessed between things of earth and heaven was what we would expect to see from one architect who designed and built two different realms. Common, relatable designs which were meant to interface with each other. I hope you jotted down the scripture references I use regarding the visions the prophets and John had, because I encourage you to go back and read all the passage I mentioned that contain the different descriptions of heaven. Not only read them, but savor them. We're given these detailed descriptions for a reason. Meditate on them. Envision them in your mind. Like Paul tells us to do, set your affection and attention on them. That is where the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was talking about is. It's not here. It's where your Lord and Savior currently resides, along with all the saints that have went before us. It's where heavenly beings that were present for the first day of creation and everything that has taken place since bow in adoration and cast their crowns at the feet of the one who sits on the throne. It's where absolute righteousness and justice dwell. For the elect of God, it's where their true citizenship is. It's home. It's where our hearts should be. My own heart almost explodes just thinking about it. But what a way to go. Meditating on the things above, rather than on our current world troubles, when there's nothing we can do about them, is not escapism. It's not an attempt to distract ourselves from our problems here on earth. And it's not a denial of reality. That's what I'm telling you. Heaven is real. Keeping our minds centered on the things above gives us perspective on these temporary troubles below. It doesn't distract us from our worries. It replaces our worries with truth-based perspective. Well, heaven's going to come up a lot in this series, but that's about all I have to say about the reality of heaven for now. Next time, I'm going to talk about the reality of hell. Until then, may God richly bless you. May he give you a burning desire to seek his truth. And Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.